0: Welcome to Geek Life, the indie comics podcast on Pandamanga.com. I'm your host, JP. As always with me are my fearless co-hosts, Joe. hi And Marcus. A little heads up, Marcus isn't feeling terribly good today, so if he's grumpy... You want me to be like, <laughs> just fuck everything. You know what? This
1: comic shouldn't have been made with
0: paper. Fuck that.
1: But I just watch. don't want to be the only
0: one who turns I'm... into a douchebag when I get sick. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm
1: going to keep my cool and everyone's going to be like, this is the
0: best Marcus episode yet. <laughs> Uh good Lord. All right, so we're talking about something a little bit different than normal. No, we fucking aren't. <laughs> it's comics. Don't lie. It's not comics. Bullshit. No. After much talking amongst ourselves, we have decided that the Geek Life podcast is going to change... We're going to make a slight right. Not a total right or left, but just a slight turn. Uh, we're going to basically split our attentions between the more mainstream creator-owned comic Books like what we're talking about today, Deadly Class by Rick Remender and uh, art by Wes Craig, Color by Lee Lurig. But so we're going to be talking about things like that half the time. And then half the time we will continue to do our, our same old jam of talking about creator owned and, and self published comics. That is obviously where our heart is and will remain. But we do feel like it'd be interesting for us to talk about some other things and to hopefully, uh, you know, expand our audience a little bit. And we've got a pretty good banter that we have back and forth between us and we're all really good friends and have a good time talking about comics and we figure it'd be fun to spread our focus a little bit and talk about some things that maybe already have some people interested in them and in a shameless grab to try and get more listens. <laughs> but seriously, uh, these are comics that we we really do like and this is still in the realm of something that is outside of the kind of big two corporate silly garbage. I'm sure that there's still some of that going on behind the scenes but it definitely feels like these people come out, they have a story they want to tell, they tell it and they're done. And that, by respect, I think we all respect a lot. And so, going straight from the self-published comics only, we're going to be, like I said, splitting self-published half of our time on that, and then half of our time on the creator-owned, you know, kind of indie mainstream stuff, like, you know, Image and IDW and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, like I said, today we're talking about the new comic Deadly Class, written by Rick Remender, art by Wes Craig, color by Lee Luridge. So this is an interesting little comic. Takes place in San Francisco and follows a homeless teenager, Marcus. Not me. Not this Marcus. The character's name is Marcus. And uh, follows him through his daily challenges and gives a little bit of information about his past. And then eventually follows him to his eventual enrollment in the King's Dominion School of the Deadly Arts, where he learns to become, or at least starts to learn to become, an assassin. And I think that's Joe's first objection. (laughs) We were chatting about it on the way over here, and so, like we always do, we're going to split the podcast into two parts: first, talking about the story, and then the art. So, speaking of the story, Joe, Mm -hmm. let's give your take your battle axe off the wall here. All right. (laughs) Well, how how far are we going
1: to get into the story? Are we talking like we're talking
0: we're talking about maybe the first three issues ish, something like that? I'd like to touch a little bit on issues four, five, and six, all of which should probably be contained in a uh, a trade coming out soon which you can get it from your is. local comic book shop, which is another reason why we wanted to make sure and start talking about something like this is because I feel like a big barrier for a lot of people is that unless we're talking about something that's, only, that's available, you know, just to view online, it's, it's, not, it's not terribly easy to get a hold of some of the indie comics we talk about. And so it's nice to be able to have something that you can just kind of wander down to basically any comic book shop and pick up. So, the story. Joe uh, immediately had objection to the basic premise so elaborate, my friend, because I, I myself, spoilers, really like this comic a lot. I don't think it's perfect, but there's a lot that I really do enjoy. And Joe had some some different thoughts. So what's up? Well, the premise came a little later.
1: The first issue, that's where I had kind of my my initial misgivings
0: about it. Yeah, I can remember we talked about it a while ago. We both got the first issue. Mm-hmm. And I read it. No, I didn't read it. You read it. Yes. I waited, got the second issue, and then read them both, and was like, that is awesome. And Joe was like, I didn't like it. I didn't buy the second issue. Yeah.
1: The original first issue has nothing to do with pretty much anything. I completely agree. Yeah, it had all that backstory for Marcus, and then the last two pages is, (laughs) by the way, this is all about what you just read. Doesn't really matter too much, except to give you a little insight on that character. The rest of the story is going to be about what's on these two pages. And I was like, well,
0: well, shit, thanks for wasting my time. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that is something that I would call really confident storytelling. And we've talked about before, sometimes that comes across as as masterful and awesome. And sometimes it comes across as a gamble and a loss. And I'm not sorry that it was done this way, but I I definitely agree with you that it felt like the whole first issue was heading in one direction. And then, like, literally the last, like, two or three pages, it just, boom, total, Mm -hmm. total flipped on your head. And I don't mind and kind of out of the left field. What a twist. That's not a problem so much. But, you know, ongoingly, it doesn't really seem to come back up into the story except for, you know, I guess a little bit in, in episode three or episode three, issue three. I didn't have as much of a problem with it as you did. I feel like. And it could just be because I read issue one and issue two back to back Mm. so that as soon as things changed, it was like, what? School for assassins? I thought he was just some sad homeless kid. Huh? I'll continue reading. And then I read into issue two and it's like, okay, we're kind of getting into the rhythm of how things are really going to ongoingly be for the rest of the story. Even when it introduces all the, the second characters and they come in and kind of save
1: his ass when he's running away from the cops. That right there feels like, okay, this could be, you know, a secret society that's training these young people to be assassins. But then when it drops them down, they take the elevator underground into this giant chasm, and it's a freaking Victorian mansion, and everyone's in school uniforms. What the hell is this? And it just made I, Joe go, Oh, Yeah. And see, I disagree with you that that's, that's not confident storytelling. That's... That's kind of half ass storytelling.
0: No, the confident storytelling part is specifically talking about how the first issue spends most of the issue in character development, which See, is not that's exciting e- most of the time. That's
1: exactly where I disagree, man. If it was really confident, it would get you into the meat of the story and let all this background character development kind of emerge. I think we've talked about that before on a bunch of the indie stuff. Well, it's, it's first issue-itis. It's, it, it's people yeah. trying to establish what it is, but they didn't do the job of establishing what it was because yeah. all I knew was that there was a homeless guy. I knew that at the end of the issue that there were cops chasing him, and I'm on issue three, and I still don't know why. Mm-hmm. So it's like they wanted, they wanted to spend the issue establishing the character they, and getting background story, and yet they still didn't even manage to do that. Yeah, they kind of mention that he burnt down a boy's school or something like that.
0: Yeah, in the yeah they they mention that he burnt down a boy's school, and in the first issue there is a scene where it's him remembering being in the boy's home, and he's sitting there working on this surprisingly advanced-looking bomb, mm-hmm. <laughs> sitting next to this guy who ends up being you know quite the serious, fierce antagonist later. A little cheesy, sort of like a terrible '80s villain. Which, again, I guess the story takes place in the 80s, so you can kind of get away with that, but... Is that in the second issue? In issue... I remember it three, now. Three. Oh. That you mentioned yeah, it? I think it was three. I read I read one, two, and three. Yeah, so in issue three, you actually see this, like, creepy dude with a messed up face lurking around, and that's the guy who was his roommate, who I think got hurt in okay. the fire.
1: That went way over my head then, so I feel like that's a fault on storytelling mm-hmm. and or maybe the, even the art, but... It was very quickly glossed over his backstory when it comes to that stuff. I feel like at the point when they had the scene where he was making the elaborate little bomb thing, I didn't connect that as being a flashback. I thought that was like his new roommate or something. And he just happened to be masturbating to a poodle because in the previous scene, they're like, and also no sex, no drugs, no this, no this, none of this at the school. So I'm like, so that's how they get off. They masturbate to poodles. And meanwhile, he's making some sort of bomb thing. And I'm like, I, I had no idea where the story was at that point, and I thought it was part of the—I conti- Like I didn't realize that was a flashback. Mm, yeah, no, it was a flashback. So the only clue that I had was at some point someone called him a kid killer.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's all that I was going on. So that's interesting. We have this strange balance of lots and lots and lots of indulgence in what could be called character development, but then not a lot is said. About his past. I think so. So we see a lot, like painfully large amounts of detail about his day-to-day life that is miserable, sad, and depressing, but still don't learn a whole lot about him, save that his parents died in a rather abrupt, brutal way. Mm-hmm. That and he
1: blames Ronald Reagan for.
0: That, yeah, that it's Ronald Reagan's fault, because a crazy person jumped off of a uh, jumped off of the golden gate bridge and landed on the parents mm-hmm. that was a great two-page spread but we'll talk, oh, we'll talk about God. that and in the art artwork. yeah there was a lot of beautiful art for sure and it was reagan's
1: fault that all the loony bins were being closed down
0: yeah basically reagan cutting costs for mental asylums people got released that shouldn't have been released and, and one this, of them landed on his parents yeah one of them just jumps and kills el parentals so yeah but yeah Okay. Hmm. Interesting. It's it's always interesting to talk to other people about a comic that you like, or I guess that I like, when they aren't as big fans of it because it, it opens my eyes and I can sometimes see a more clear sort of well-rounded perspective on the comic because I got caught up with the art right away. I like the art. I like the palette. There's a lot going on there artistically that I find incredibly attractive and I find myself giving a little bit of leeway to some of the story structure. Mm. Um, and I, I do like the characters' interpersonal relations and and dialogue. I think that that's something that Remender is particularly excellent at. It's mm. almost a kind of Joss Whedon sort of ability to basically have the characters banter back and forth and be talking about one thing, but really be filling you in on something else as far as who they are and what they're up to and what they feel is important. And you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of sort of really skillful dialogue in this that I think really starts to come together in issue three in particular, when it's Willie and Marcus running around on their first mission out for the deadly arts class.
1: Yeah. I will agree that in issue three, I, I liked a lot of the dialogue that was happening there. Some of it seemed unrealistic, though, for, for the characters that they were developing. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Saya, for example, in all of issue two is like, fuck off, leave me alone, don't talk to me. Right. Yet, she's responsible for... All of his decisions. I don't see how someone can take responsibility for one's decisions, which would put, you know, her reputation and her ability to be at this school at stake, but then not want anything to do with him. That doesn't make any sense to me.
0: It, and they actually go over that a little bit later on, where she's involved in their sort of crazy joy ride to Las Vegas. And I'm just describing this out of context. It sounds like a really wacky ass comic. And I guess it kind mm. of is. <laughs> but basically, she's having to kind of save face with her Yakuza gang. and She can't be friendly with all these freaks or the new kid because then she puts her sort of position at risk because she's in charge of the Yakuza.
1: There was also a really good, like, what I thought could be potential, like, emotional buildup between him and Willie when they were starting to talk about what it's like to distance yourself from people and be completely honest and people's reaction to that and sure. you know he mm-hmm. goes on and starts saying well fuck you I don't want to hear like why are you even talking to me if, if you're just trying to be you know cordial and we're not actually being friends which you know first of all seems like it's the opposite of the attitude towards every, that every everyone there is establishing um, right. it seems like everyone there is you know a hardened killer of sorts which the issue goes on to sort of elaborate on, on why Will is there what his past is that's not exactly what it's shown but still the the fact that he's representing himself like that I don't understand why he would care all of a sudden how friendly he was with with uh with Marcus and then to skip to the very next scene and he's like well what music are
0: you listening to it's like it was just it was over like I had a distinct sense that they kind of wandered around in in silence for a while and they were pretty much ignoring each other thus why his music was in and Willie just kind of got sick and tired of the silence and was like uh, what, what music are you listening to? You know, just, you know what I mean? Like how, if you're stuck with someone like a lab partner, which is sent is literally what they were yeah. and you're not getting along and you're kind of ignoring each other, but at some point you got to talk, you know, that's sort of the, what I felt like was progressing, you know, story-wise there. But, you know, I, I, agree that it seems like Willie is of two minds and that's exactly correct. I think his character is an interesting and a little bit more complex character than he likes to put on. He puts on this tough front. I'm a tough gangster guy from Compton. Don't mess with me. I killed a bunch of fools because they messed with my dad. Gur, gur, gur. I'm so tough. But at the end of the day, he's, he's just a normal person who doesn't really want to do any harm and is just pretending, really. When you learn more about his history, you learn more about his backstory and how that really went down. Essentially, circumstances conspired to you know make him look hard and, and tough, and he sort of ran with it for survival but that's not really who he is deep down he's actually kind of a good like like a nice guy and and i think actually pretty pretty sweet and pretty lonely needing a friend and so that's why i think that even though they're both rough around the edges and sort of wild cats kind of hissing at each other circling they both genuinely want a real friend i think they're both needing that maybe i just
1: i think as a as a sum a lot of the conversation like it was like I wrote a lot of little conversations where that didn't make sense to me. And then that mm-hmm. didn't make sense to me. And then that makes sense to me to the point where I was like, the conversations in this book don't seem like they would come from the mouth of these
0: characters. Because you think that they would be not as open and genuine or because that they would be like more hardcore or what? I, I think they would all be much hardened
1: if this was at the actual like reality situation.
0: And right, but I mean that's that that the whole wouldn't... idea of that entire sequence mm-hmm. is that the two of them are off on their own, doing mm-hmm. their own thing. And it's an opportunity for the bullshit to slide away because they're both being forced to prove that they're tough. They're being forced to go kill someone. How old are the, are the characters in this They're book? like teenagers, like yeah. 16, 15. That's why I'm
1: thinking it's probably realistic that even though they are so like hardened and having to be tough, that they're still kids and they're still going to talk about music and yeah, like, like, Oh, you, you know, listen when the, to
0: what's hot. Well, you know, when, a, when the rubber hits the road is, you know, they're still kids. They're still not, as hardcore as they seem to pretend to be. It seems like they're almost more forced to act that way because they're a victim of their circumstances and upbringing.
1: Yeah, see, I don't buy it. I just feel like if they're going to represent this school as being the place where they train the most master assassins and they pick people specifically because of their backgrounds, it wouldn't be your typical, like, I don't think they pick school, them. I think that they get sent there. Clicky type. Yeah, situation. a lot of them were sent
0: there. He was picked. Yeah, he was picked. He was picked by by Master Lin because he feels like Marcus represents the spirit of the school in that those who are not in power can still affect those in power and can change the world with a bullet. That's their sort of deal. You know, and so he feels like someone who is from a low class, you know, homeless type person, struggling, really no power to change the world is still capable of changing the world. And he wants to kind of still in the spirit of the school do that. So he basically, the school sponsors him in. Whereas most of the people are sent there by choice, by mafioso bosses and drug runners and all this sort of stuff. They're basically sending their children there to make them tough and scary. Hmm. Yeah, I, I
1: didn't connect with that for some reason. I feel like, I mean, specifically with, with Marcus, because the first, issue is, the first issue is no joke. It's not like he's having any sort of a comedy. You know, it represents a very, a very, very dark, yeah. depressing, like at one point he's standing on the edge of the bridge thinking about suicide type lifestyle, and to fall into a Buffy the Vampire Slayer type high school environment, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, to me, it, it, just, it doesn't connect. It's, it's a more serious tone than I feel like what was being represented by the characters in the book. Yep. And that's really why the first issue totally turned me off. Because
0: it was too serious.
1: No, it was so serious. And then, oh yeah, by the way, it's a sexy teenage high school. Mm. for assassins Uh, yeah
0: yeah it's right it goes from this sort of dark gritty sad pensive life is hard the world is terrible to this cavalier plucky high school that's you know what i mean like everybody there is very cavalier about how hardcore and how deadly and you know we're gonna Mm. you know
1: what i mean like it's and that disjointedness really just keeps on popping up throughout the book so you know that's really why i can't get
0: into it interesting interesting i guess i just kind of bought into it and was along for the ride i mean i actually really 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 like you know buffy the vampire slayer stuff and that kind of stuff so maybe it's just for people like me who like that you know it's not really realistic but it's they put these people in the situations and they're supposed to be capable of all this badassery but they're still genuine and not all jacked up inside and you know i don't know maybe it's Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's a kind of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, sort of Joss Whedon type thing.
1: And I like Buffy and I like Angel just fine. I just I feel like this type of setting is not what that should be. Yeah. No, I
0: watch all of Joss Whedon stuff yeah. and this is... Like the character interaction feels similar, but the premise doesn't fit the character interaction is what you're saying, right? Kinda. And also just the way it jumps from having to be
1: badass, to having the quirky character development. There's no middle ground. Like It goes from, ah, crap, you're falling off a building. I'm going to save your life, to, so what you listening to? Mm, yeah. is, uh, typical 80s music. It's, oh, I hate typical 80s music. I listen to atypical 80s in m- Right, and,
0: right, yeah. right.
1: You know, Whedon has that subtle way of going from, oh, crap, we're being shot at, to, all right, well, that's over. Let's get a beer. Right, but
0: it feels like a reasonable transition instead of Mm -hmm. kind of like clip. Yeah, I see.
1: Well, I mean, even the the type of characters that are in the environment for Buffy, you know, they're high school kids. So Mm -hmm. it makes sense that even though supernatural things are going on, that they would still be high school kids. Whereas these guys are supposed to be hardcore killers. That's kind of what I thought. And, and yeah. the other thing, too, is that it represents them to be hardcore killers. And at this point, I'm not sure how many of them have been at the school for a long time and how many mm-hmm. of them are just starting school. Because it like, I don't know. He's been there for what, like two days. Yeah, he's been there for two days. And he kind of seems like, is he at the same level as everybody now? Like, I don't, I don't know where mm-hmm. the spectrum is for who is the b- most badass out of all of them, because I don't know who's willing to do anything. If it were taken as seriously as I feel like it it would be, you know, the rules, no drugs, no killing other people in the school. Some of the things that are happening in the book would be happening. Like the kid that gets jumped in the showers immediately followed by the penis joke about him. And it just like it just it felt out of place for what they're trying
0: to do in the story. So maybe this would all work better if they were a little older and not a bunch of high school kids. If you wanted to continue this premise. I don't know. I think the goofiness is just it, it kinda kills it for me. Interesting. Yeah. All right, well, definitely a little more somber look at, at the comic. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so well, why don't we go ahead and take a quick musical break? When we get back, we'll continue on and talk about the art, which I think will probably have a lot more positive comments than than the writing. Oh the indeed. <laughs> You're listening to Geek Live, stick with us. back to Geek Life, the Indie Comics Podcast, talking about Deadly Class by Rick Remender, art by Wes Craig, color by Lee Luridge. Moving on to talking about the art, I think one of the first things that stands out to me is the color. I really like the autumn palette, and a lot of times that almost monochromatic look. Not, not always a completely, strictly monochromatic, but an almost monochromatic look, and it's just really amazingly amazingly used. Luridge knocks it out of the park here, it, you know, sets a tone uh, and a real strong feel for each scene very skillfully and just with style to spare, I think. Most of the time, especially with the color. The color is really, really successful in this comic for me. It reminded me at times of some of that monochromatic, heavy on the silhouette run of Hawkeye, mm. which I liked so much. Yeah, by Aha. Uh, uh-huh. mm-hmm. But this actually jumps around color palette wise a lot more.
1: Take <laughs> Take, uh-huh, me. Um, I like that when it seemed like they were underground that's when it got muted and when it seemed like when they were above on the surface then the color started to show out a little more. Right. It made sense to me that you know if, if they had, are living in, in a mansion that's completely under the ground it would be a little muted underneath there and I felt like mm-hmm. that was executed well.
0: Something that I thought was amazing was the the flashback to Marcus's parents and their history and then their death. That like kind of grey tone watercolor look. And the flashback was very different than the rest of the comic. Like the actual, like everything was watercolor. It wasn't like watercolor gray tones on top of typical comic inks. Mm -hmm. It had a totally different look. It looked like it was completely composed of, of of gray watercolor, which I thought was neat. And it added to that kind of misty, watery look that is associated with kind of the fogginess of remembering something from when you were a child and i thought that was very successful
1: i liked that spread a lot there was only one thing i didn't like with those pages and it was the the white boxes that he put over the faces of the characters on those pages like it would have it had the mother and father standing and then it had like these transparent white boxes over their faces which i just i didn't see any need for i didn't think that it added anything to anything and if anything it just made it look more kind of convoluted and it was just unnecessary oh, i don't unnecessary. remember that do you remember that? No, well, top of my head. But splash pages throughout the the first races that I read, almost every one of them was was really impressive. the the mm-hmm. one with uh, Marcus and Willie jumping from one to right oh, the other that was great. Yeah. A, a great great page. And, and I then the, the, the back three of the book panels on the right side. Well, in the back of the book, it actually shows you the progression. Yes. Of uh, you know, the the, the rough thumbnails to the inks to the final colored product, and it's it's always fun to get those kind of behind the scenes progression steps for a page that is particularly well done definitely
0: i like how they had all that detail and that big jump and you know they really spread i guess one and two-thirds of another page and then on the right side there were the three boxes vertically red that you know describes willie almost missing the roof and the silhouettes are somehow so expressive and I love the, little, the three little lines above Willie's head that have him kind of go like a cartoon, like, boink, oh shit, I'm yeah. going to miss this. Mm-hmm. Like, that really cracked me up. And uh, yeah, that, that scene in particular was really awesome. But,
1: Something I was really impressed with was how the lines and the color work together so well. Like, the lines didn't dictate every single thing that the colorist would have to fill in when they're running from the cops in the first issue. When Saya is painted up like the Día de los Marte Mm-mm, lady, that's, that's Maria. That's not Saya. That was, that's was Maria. It Maria. I thought. Mm-hmm. You know no, Saya comes was. in on the motorcycle. Well, that's right. So when Maria's painted up, you can tell that there were no lines on all that makeup. That the the colors were all just solid blocks. There, not right. Fill not painting.
0: You know, painting in the. In lines yeah not coloring within the lines it was all described specifically just by the tones and stuff yeah you know
1: what I was really curious about was how was the team assembled to go pick up Marcus to go grab him off the streets because it seemed like it had a kind of a mitch well
0: actually most of it was kind of from the freaks and geeks group yep. mm-hmm. it's all from the freaks and geeks group and it's basically the same gang but is Maria in- part of oh, that group she is she she ends up so that gang comes back together again when they bust Marcus out of the shoe out of you know solitary to go on their road trip. It's the same guys that but that saved his ass when he was getting chased mm-hmm. by the cops, and also happened to be the same guys that he just finds hanging out smoking pot one day. Well, a, a chunk of them, and then some other guys yeah. that you don't really talk about more. So yeah, because it seemed like Maria was part of the uh, the the Mexican, totally part group. of the Mexican group, and she was trying to get him involved, mm-hmm. even though he was Nicaraguan.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: you know, figured you know. Close enough, oh, I guess, is
1: what she was thinking. Yeah. And the Freaks and Geeks were from everywhere you now. There yep. was the British kid. That's true. That's true. The,
0: yeah. What's her yeah, name? Really, Willie and Willy the British from, kid are pretty much the only ones out of that group that were f- still in the Freaks and Geeks type group that are actually not associated with Yeah, and they're mm-hmm. still kind of part of this gang of friends from all these different walks and all mm-hmm. these different groups that come together. What about the straight edge kid? I don't really think that we see him again in the issues that we've seen anyway. No, mm-hmm. no. I'm sure he'll be back though. I mean, they've all a lot of very strong characters that they've created. One thing that I thought was really excellent in this comic artistically was the layout. Did you guys notice that when the chase begins in issue one, the gutters actually tilt a slightly to the side that add to this sense of tension motion. And everybody is running in almost every panel, every page from the left side of the page to the right side of the page. And the left side is tilted up and the right side is dipped down like they're running down a hill. And that All of them are like that, everything. And they've got these just really very interesting gutters and and frame layout that they do a lot. And they do a lot of what I like, which is that really wide, narrow frames. I like that a lot. And they just use the frame layout to describe motion and energy and and movement so successfully in this. And they really sort of take the shape and take the feeling of whatever happens to be going on. I thought that was super successful, especially that chase scene right in the beginning in issue one where Marcus is running from the cops and then all these kids from King's Dominion kind of come out of the woodwork and save his ass and then Saya comes up on the motorcycle and that whole sequence was just excellent layouts. It really it was. I
1: didn't actually catch the, the methods that they used to it's do it. It's subtle. There's a group in Sacramento that gets together that's taught by Neil Congrezzia on on methods to make the frames enhance the storytelling ability. And Neil's, Neil Bringretzi, he's a, a really, really great artist, and he's really fantastic at, at explaining what the artists are doing when they're laying out pages. And um, that would be a perfect example of how that methodology can be used to make you feel like you're in the chase. Because while I wasn't a fan of the first issue, I will say that the chase scene was fantastic. Wow. The chase scene, because oh. it felt like it was going the entire time, and no doubt because of the methods that he used to make it feel that way, like the angled frames and... Uh, always, you know, left to right, so that it keeps the story going
0: in that direction, like leading on to the next page. Right, exactly. I mean, just again and again and again, the way the the layout works, the the frames, how they work together, how there's sometimes no frames, how the gutters aren't really ever drawn with black lines, but they're just white spaces. Like, it's just, that is a very, very slick, tight, kind of advanced way of layout. And I think that as we read more and more comics, we realize that once you get past being able to draw the forms and make them be like, oh, that looks like that. And that looks like it's not all warped and messed up and has foreshortening problems. But like I want to draw a person holding a gun, wearing, you know, jeans and wearing a leather jacket, and you can go like bang and make that happen visually, then there's a whole nother realm of skill that you have to work out, which is laying it out, putting it in the frames, arranging the frames, making sure there's space to describe where they are, what they're doing, where they're going, enough space for them to talk, enough space for there to be sound effects, it and how to angle things. I mean, there's so much. In the layout. And it's one thing that I'm just going to love on Marcus a little bit here. One thing that I really think is so good about your comics, Marcus, is that you have a very natural sense for really good layouts. Some of that could be attributed to Neil, probably. Oh, I'll bet. I went I'll to bet. a lot of his tutorials. But I mean, so. it makes, it makes things go a really long way. You know, your, your comics aren't the, um, super hyper realistic, incredibly huge amounts of detail type comics. At times they are. But, it's raised to such a higher level because the layouts are so sharp. And I think that that's one of the things that I have come to realize I like so much about so many of the comics is it's really less about the pictures in the frames and more about how they work together and the frames themselves. Mm.
1: Storytelling ability. You know, it's yep. something that we've talked about in the past. And if your artist has, is a great artist, but can't tell a story, then it's going to hinder the
0: comic book a lot oh, all day long. Yeah,
1: absolutely. There was one facial expression in the third issue that I felt was out of place when they were about to kill the the first homeless guy. That, that was their target because of his reputation as being a bad guy. And then you find later that he's actually the same guy who was trying to steal Marcus's shoes when he was homeless in the first issue. Mm-hmm. Um, But he says something like, if you wanted your shoes, I could have just given them back to you. Or he has some sort of greeting to Marcus that he recognizes him. And his face He's like,
0: I'm going to murder you. Is, yeah, it's yeah.
1: absolutely like it's wrenched in a way that makes it look like it's high emotion but the phrase doesn't seem like it's high emotion Mm -hmm. yeah yeah
0: one of the things i wanted to make sure to bring up artistically was the way that they did the flashbacks to willie's childhood where his father was killed his uncle comes in kind of saves his bacon shoots the guys helps him sort of come up with how things are going to go and we're we're shown that story twice once In the way that it supposedly happens and then once again later on when they become a little closer in the way that it actually happens. After a little bit of a breakdown when Willie can't quite pull the trigger quite literally. And it's great because the flashbacks are done in a comic in the comic. Like it's a comic book that is inside of the comic itself. Yeah, that was Mm. cool. And that was neat. And all they did was just kind of pull things back a little bit and then tilt it to the side so that it looked like a page of a comic book just in a frame, like someone reading a comic book in the comic book itself. And I thought that was, that was subtle. And at first I didn't even realize that that's what they were doing. But then I read it and I was like, shit, man, that looks like as Willie is remembering it, he's remembering it as if it was a comic book that I thought was really slick.
1: Uh, it worked a lot better too than uh, the first time that there was a flashback, because like I said, I didn't even realize the first time there was a flashback with the boy masturbating to the
0: poodle. <laughs> I didn't realize that was a flashback. I Yeah, that flashback was super confusing. Yeah. And the only reason that you know that it's a flashback is because the palette changes pretty dramatically, and it's totally out of sequence with what's going on. Because that was at the beginning of
1: that issue, and it transitions from that to him talking to the headmaster. Like, well, is he like telling on his roommate for jacking off
0: to animals, or wait, (laughs) what? What just happened? Oh, I didn't find it that confusing. I felt like it was a little bit more clear that it was, you know, still before. I feel Mm -hmm. like. I mean, I don't know. I can't remember off the top of my head. I don't have the comic book in front of me, but it feels like it was. I also remember that the beginning
1: of the of the TV show that they were watching was describing a poodle and a poodle's skull. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if it's because of that, but I thought that, oh, well, this is an environment where they have to know as much as possible. So maybe they're made to watch just mm-hmm. random <laughs> educational shit all fucking day long. <laughs> and I was like, oh, OK, it well, makes sense. Yeah. Then he starts to get off
0: on the poodle. And I'm like, well... Maybe they find it where they can take it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, as it turns out in the actual story, what's really going on is that this is one of the guys at the boy's home that he eventually burns down. That was his roommate and who was a sick, sick boy and survives scarred and trashed up Marcus's little firebomb and basically makes it his mission in life to destroy Marcus.
1: That's... I like I that my name is Marcus, too. Because, and and that I, I maintained my contact when I
0: said mission in life
1: to destroy Marcus. I feel like this this whole podcast
0: is just going to rip boost up my ego. It's because it's all about me. Marcus, 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 Marcus. I think the final thing that I want to say artistically that is really, really excellent was the fear and loathing in Las Vegas homage that they've done with issues four, five and six, where they kind of road trip out to Vegas, get jacked up on drugs, especially Marcus. And I think <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That is. it was, a good, a, it was a good trip. It was yeah. a good trip pun the, intended taking taking someone to Las Vegas in the middle of the night and going down the strip when they are tripping balls is like a great idea artistically to like have the the viewer the reader be able to see all this crazy shit that's warped and twisted and bright and neon and insane and mixed in with the past and the story and the ideas and the fears of this main character. In the midst of this just madness, I thought that when, I guess in the end of issue four, you realize that he is really, really high, mistakenly, and I won't give you, give away why, but in in issue five, you know that they're about to go to the strip and it's like, oh, this will be good. (laughs) Because he's going to be like, oh my God. I mean, it's just so much stimulation overload. And that I think worked really well. I thought it was really visually impressive. And that they got a room at Circus Circus.
1: (laughs) Of course. I love Circus Circus. All right. So, any final thoughts, you guys? Just the, uh, the artwork. I felt like was the more predominant success.
0: In totally. Yeah, in the art kind of carried it. It. It's not like the story was violently broken. It's not no. like you can't find parts to enjoy. It's a little bit uneven, a little bit disjointed here and there. Mm-hmm. And depending on your interests, your taste, and in- you may or may not be able to roll with it. This fit within interests that I might have, I guess, and I kind of liked the atmosphere that Remender was able to create. I agree with you guys, now that we've talked about it a little bit more, that there are some problems and inconsistencies with the characters. Sure. I myself really enjoyed this, and I'm looking forward to reading more. I liked it quite a bit. And it could be that the art is bolstering my opinion of it dramatically. Hmm. Um, I don't know if the art was mediocre or just really different and not interesting that if I would have stuck with it as much as I did. But you know, if it continues to be the same creative team, I'm totally going to see this through to the end, because I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. It's a good read. I think issue one should have been an issue zero, which is is my sum up of of where they started. Because if they would have
1: started with the school in issue two and done issue one as sort of flashbacks Mm -hmm. successfully, then (laughs) I would have bought it more.
0: Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Mm. again, we were talking about Deadly Class from Rick Remender, and you guys can find it at your local comic book shop. Oh, my God. It's so exciting. We talked about something you can just walk into a store and grab. Aren't you lucky? Oh, Yes. Thanks again for listening to Geek Life. We love to hear from our listeners. Please email us at geeklifeatpanamanga.com with your questions, comments, and insights. Have a suggestion for the show? Have a comic you'd like us to review? Would you like to send us your opinion? And hopefully it's, we love you guys. But really anything you'd like to say, send it on over, Panamanga.com. Music has been provided by Airplus Recordings. As
1: always, links to the artists and songs featured in this episode are available in the show notes at podcast.pandamanga.com. If you'd like more information about AirPlus Recordings, visit airplusrecordings.com. This is Joe, and we will see you next time. That's how we start the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <clears throat> What's that mystery noise? Oh Cross-hatching is like ball
0: hair.